Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, you know, I mean, I think this this is our second to last Monday episode as a duo. Yeah, Joanna, she's coming. We promise. Coming back. Yeah, she's coming back. I, I, you know, it's 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 about time. <laughs> it's yeah. about time. We miss you, Joanna. We do. I feel like also she like she seems to like go to interesting places and drink interesting things. And you and I are just kind of like ah, wine. What <laughs> what have you been drinking recently, though? Well, you know, I actually, in honor of this past weekend's festivities, I taught a class about the margarita the other day. Oh, really? Uh, you did really, to who? I did uh, to a group of drinks aficionados. I guess you would say there's a uh, an interesting. I guess you would call I mean, it's a private club okay. you know, here in Seattle. They have a couple of locations around the, the country called Birch Road. Ooh. And it's like a interesting kind of club for people who like to drink, uh, shockingly. And I think the, the kind of interesting thing is it's sort of a, like you pay a membership fee. You get a, like a temperature controlled storage locker so you can leave some of your collection on site. And then you can just kind of pop in whenever you want and hang out, drink. There's like sort of all of the ways to make drinks except for like there's no spirits on hand but like um you know except for what you yourself or your friends or whatever have but there are like you know there's lots of cocktail making equipment there's lots of wine glasses there's mixers and uh, you know uh, produce and stuff like that so hmm. um i went and taught a class there about the margarita which was a lot of fun um you know cocktail i love obviously it was very topical for this mm-hmm. weekend yeah and what was fun for me is i got to kind of run people through sort of the the two most kind of iconic forms so the classic margarita and the tommies mm-hmm. and then brought a lot of kind of modifiers and let people play around with them so that meant a lot of time making various purees and syrups so had like a mango puree some strawberry rhubarb i also made strawberry balsamic which is like my favorite kind of weird uh this time of year especially margarita uh edition brought some jalapenos some mint some cilantro all that kind of stuff That's and cool. then uh, just kind of let people go to town so i had at the end i, I finished things off with actually a, a style of margarita that i enjoy even if it's a little it can be a little bit intense which i'd also made like a very strong not boozy just like very uh, concentrated lime uh syrup i guess mm-hmm. um but made with like the whole lime so it's very kind of bitter along with being kind of tart and a little sweet and just kind of use that in a Tommy's margarita in place of the agave nectar. And it's like a little lime overload, but also really fun. Um, so yeah, it was really kind of in Margaritaville. Thanks, Jimmy, over the weekend. How about you, Adam? What, did you, what have you had recently that's been exciting? Well, I mean, I can't, I can't uh, top that. That's really awesome. So this past week, I met up with my friend Matt Crafton, who's the winemaker of Chateau Montalena. He was in town. Um, and he and I went and got lunch together and just caught up, but we also shared a bottle of his, um, 2020 Chardonnay. Nice. Which was really delicious. And then on top of that, I also had some Tommy's margaritas for the holiday Yeah, and also made Palomas, which was fun. And then for the Derby, uh, I was in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania visiting my in-laws and having them and all of their friends meet Esty. And so we went to the horse Inn on Saturday night and, uh, Naomi and I shared a bunch of their cocktails and I got their burger, which is my favorite. So, you know, good times all around, good times all around. And I'm still, you know, reporting, uh, that there, there are several nights throughout last week when I would have that one glass of whiskey after I put her to bed, which was nice. 
<laughs> which was nice. Yeah, so, an, I, as I told you, it's a nice feeling. So you and I have been talking about around this topic for a long time now, and it felt like, uh, you know, I mean, not that we are picking on Natty Wine, but um, <laughs> you and I both have noticed what seems to be an oncoming trend, but it's not a trend, right? It's it's the the lack of the trend, and it seems, and what we mean is that it seems like. The wind is kind of coming out of the natural wine sales in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me and to you in different ways that natural wine is not being pushed as aggressively as it used to be. And a lot of places that became known for natural wine are changing their lists. So you're starting to see, like, I mean, I know I mentioned the, you know, the Israeli restaurant Misada that I love to go to now has a section that says, you know, that it's like clean natural wine. Uh, I've seen sort of wine professionals that have become known for natural wine in New York opening new locations and in interviews or in press releases we get sent saying things like, don't worry, you know, the, li- the while the list will have some quote unquote fun bottles, which you take to mean like, I don't know, glue, glue or funky, there will be lots of serious and clean wines. And yeah, I, I think I'm curious as to, I think there's lots of reasons for that, but I'm curious if you're seeing the same thing and what you think some of these reasons are for why the wind is coming out of the sails, besides the fact that the one idea we've beat to death for the last like, few years is that the the wine just kind of I think started to really turn a lot of consumers off. I mean, I think that part of it is a natural sort of course of action for what I would, you know, kind of any movement. And I think natural wine really had a lot of, it was a revolution or at least kind of like to wrap itself in a lot of revolutionary rhetoric and ideology and things like that. And revolutions have a way of kind of, burning themselves out over time whether or not they kind of quote-unquote succeed there's just sort of only so so long you can spend railing against the establishment and having success before that railing against the establishment starts to ring hollow and sort of when the 8,000th natural wine focused wine list appeared or you know retail shop it was opened it was kind of like okay well you know what was perhaps once truly revolutionary or at least you know, different is now kind of almost the expectation. And I think that is one big piece of what kind of like takes the wind out of that kind of sales. I mean, I think in some ways about, you know, and I know we've done this analogy on the pod before, so I don't think it will come as a huge surprise to longtime listeners, but you know, it's a little bit like what happened to craft beer, right? When craft beer really asserted itself and cemented itself as a, you know, significant part of the, beer industry here in the US. Well, at some point that kind of railing against the macro loggers lost some luster, right? It wasn't really no one was making the counter argument that no, the only beer that should be available is uh domestic light lager. And so you, when you're kind of making the argument that like here we are doing something different, but it's something that's being done over and over throughout all corners of the country, you know, it's kind of hard to keep that sort of again, that kind of vigor up. I also think the other big part of it is, you know, the the backlash that has come against, you know, both individuals who are highly connected to the natural wine kind of movement and also just the sort of movement as a whole of being like unnecessarily dogmatic and perhaps unconcerned about the actual quality of wine mm-hmm. in some cases. And it's always a tough thing to do when you're when your movement is based around, again, a sort of ideology in a lot of cases 
conforming to the ideology was, you know, when it was seen as more important than serving people quality wine that they enjoyed, you know, kind of, that's kind of a, like, it's a hard, that is a hard stance to maintain for very long. And I think we have just kind of reached that point. We've reached maybe a point where the kind of people who like natural wine or are moved by that kind of rhetoric have already been exposed to it and come to enjoy it or at least accept it. And there may just not be, you know, there may be a good chunk of the wine industry, the wine consuming community that's just like, okay, what else you got? Yeah. And and that may be part of it too. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we are seeing both the, I think, you know, as, as we said, we talked about this a bunch. First, I think less people are scared than they used to be about saying that it's a wine they don't like. And again, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I know we have to always say this on this podcast because we're going to get an email from someone being like, oh, you don't like all natural wine. We're talking about natty garbage poop wine. Right. We're not, <laughs> we're not talking like we're not talking about biodynamic wine that or organic wine that is, you know, or native yeast ferment wine. Right. That is is made in a facility that is kept pristine and the winemaker is watching the entire time and the wine comes out clean and, and reflects the actual quality of the fruit that was picked. We're talking about wines that are made by former filmmakers who decide one day that the, their documentary projects aren't working out. So they're going to go buy some uh, cheap grapes in Northern California. And uh, they saw a movie one day where they people were crushing with their feet and they decided they would do that as well and just throw it in a vat and see what happens. Like that's the kind of wine we're and then And their, their friend's going to design the label. Like that's the wines we're talking about. And I think that in the same way, your craft beer example is really a good one. Like in the sort of height of the craft beer movement, there was a lot of fear of people, you know, not wanting to say that there were some of these other beers they liked. Now, there it's different, right? The craft beer movement was making really great beers, actually, but there was still this like battle that was happening between craft beer and larger scale, like loggers mm-hmm. and things like that. Here, it's it's literally a, a Oh, you're you make clean wine. Fuck you. Um, but yeah. there was a lot of fear, I think, among certain professionals, et cetera, of saying they was it was wine they didn't like or that they they didn't think was wine. And there was only a few people. Um, I would like to say us as among some of them who were, <laughs> and, you know, from the beginning, like this is not this isn't this isn't wine like this is it's it's alcoholic kombucha. Sure. Or it's it's a different kind of product like you're adding in dandelions and shit cool but this isn't like what we think of when we think of like fine wine and now i think you're seeing a lot more people who are like oh um uh, i'd like to add that i also agree um yeah. and that's happening more and more and more i didn't want to say anything because like i didn't want to be ostracized by this like group that i thought was like powerful or you know there were so many articles about it that maybe like i thought i wasn't getting something and now i was like oh shit no i was getting it the whole time it's not it's not pleasurable. I, why Why were we all pushing this? And then I also think that there was, in the same regard, there was so much press around it that people thought that it was the only way to sort of survive as a wine bar. And then I think some of the people who opened wine bars that were fully focused on natural, and we've had conversations with some of them, saw very quickly that their consumers didn't want that and were ordering more cocktails, for example, on some of their menus or beer than they were ordering the wines, and so they switched the programs. Um, yeah. And so I think that like that has definitely played out. And, and then what we're left with is that small group that has always existed and and they 
they will continue to have those wines, but pe- there are going to be other consumers, you know, other people who don't feel the pressure anymore to fit in and only have wines of that style on their lists, um, which yeah. I think is just really interesting that it took a while, but actually not as long as I kind of thought. I thought it was going to take longer for sort of the the wind to sort of leak out of the sails of of this movement, and it's it's happening pretty quickly, actually. And I wonder if the pandemic maybe helped bring about that, like. Maybe, you, you know, but I think because, you know, now you, you have restaurants and bars that are really desperate for cash and they're all having the same conversations that we have all the time, which is like, how do we make money and how do we catch up from losing all that revenue during the pandemic? And if the wine's not selling, then the first thing you do is you change the wine program. Yeah. And if they're talking to peers who are saying, well, actually, our wine's selling just fine. Oh, what kind of wine do you have? Oh, I have just like the classics from Italy and France and california and the finger lakes and whatever and you know that's what's selling the best for us oh shit maybe we should have that too yeah i want to point to a couple of other things that have happened that i think are instructive here one of them is you know we just recently saw and it's not here in the u.s yet but treasury wine estates is releasing like three wines in australia which is where they're based that are essentially natural wines and for those who are not familiar treasury is one of the largest wine companies in the world Mm -hmm. and they're the people who make 19 crimes for example and like there's this like new second glance uh, label is like obviously designed to capture this market. So they have like an amber wine, a chillable Grenache and a pet mat. And like, we talked about this years ago on the pod, which is like my, my contingent, like, because natural as a term is undefined, there's nothing stopping big producers from trying to cash in on the popularity. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing. And, and it's happened at a lot of levels, including the like story you or the you know, not exactly story, but the the kind of situation you laid out, which is like when when natural wine is a sort of a vibe and a maybe a vague flavor profile, it's easy for anyone to cash in, whether that's a small mm-hmm. producer or a huge one in some sense, without having to be particularly talented at winemaking. You have to be talented at sort of design and marketing, which are things we celebrate here on the pod. So it's not to say that those things are worthless. It's just, it, it, it's harder. It's it's that kind of product that, you know, sort of erodes the the public trust. And I think the other thing, and this isn't, doesn't have as discrete a specific example, but I think the other part is that as natural wine became more popular, it also became a cliche. Mm-hmm. It became easier and easier to sort of parody or lampoon or or sort of, you know, like my, what I what I said to you before we started recording, Adam, is like when someone could make a New Yorker cartoon about natural wine, it's like stops being kind of cool yeah. and starts being a little cringy. And I think that's a big part of it, right? When it was the cool new thing that most people were unfamiliar with and the the people who are the the kind of early adopters and the, the real zealots could be like, you don't understand like this is the cool this is the best stuff here's why it's like totally different than anything you've ever had and i think that was a selling point to a lot of people yeah. but once you've had it once you've once you've you know once you've seen the magic trick a few times it stops being so impressive and i think you kind of then come back to like well what is exactly behind all that and i think with a lot of the wines the answer is not very much and it's like okay you've tried it once it's maybe interesting but at some point, maybe you want different flavor profiles. Maybe you want different kinds of experiences. Maybe you want a little more consistency and surety in your bottles. And that's the thing that a lot of the segments of the natural wine industry have had a hard time delivering on. And I think it's just, yeah, at some point you become a caricature. And wine 
the the broader wine industry has been a caricature for so long, so easy to make fun of, that it's not immune to that, but it is learned to accept it. It is just part and parcel with being a wine lover, a wine aficionado is like, yeah, people are going to make fun of you. People are going to be like, oh, you know, where's your smoking jacket and your, you know, whatever. And like, that's fine. I mean, I think, I don't think that is the sum total of what being a wine lover is about. But, you know, if you're a wine lover, you kind of just accept that that's the deal, right? Yep. But I think natural wine is having a hard time being almost seen as uncool or at least easier to make fun of than it used to be. And that, I think, is, you know, for a for a movement that's driven so much by feeling and seeming cool, the second you stop seeming cool, well, you're kind of done for because that's the big driver of your momentum, right? It's not right really in the end about the quality of the product. It's about how cool you seem drinking it. Right. Like if everyone's playing the same trick, right? If everyone's doing yeah. the same thing. And it's interesting because like I think also part of the, the wind coming out of the sales, I saw um, there's an article to publish on a, a, d- a different publication uh, <laughs> recently. There's basically like, you know, something about how like the glue glue phase is over and we're entering, you know, mm-hmm. you know and it's like, okay, but the reason the glue glue phase is over is because everyone's sick of the trick. And the, the solution to that is that now producers are just adding other weird shit to their wines to make them even more intense. Like that's not a solution. That's just, that's just making bad wine worse. And I think that that's kicking the can down the road. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is, and and that, and that's going to, that's going to even further. So, you know, honestly, I'm glad that's happening because it'll further alienate like, you know, people from these wines. But I, I do, you know, I think that exactly what you, what you're saying is exactly correct. Right. It's just, there's only so many times that people want to drink a wine that tastes like bubblegum from different grapes and mm-hmm. that, you know, everyone was kind of following the same, like, you know, the same model, like, oh my God, like carbonic maceration, shit, we should all do with every kind of grape, no matter what. And then people are kind of like, wait, so the the wine from Spain tastes the same as the wine from Italy, tastes the same as the wine from Northern California, like, huh. That's weird because when I drink just like wines at this other wine shop I go to and they give me a wine from Piedmont and another wine from Rioja and another wine from Virginia, like they all taste different. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, the consumer base is kind of rising up. I mean, like, you know, and I want to go back to the wines that I liked that taste different or tasted of something else. Like, why did I feel bad for drinking Sauvignon Blanc or for drinking Cabernet Sauvignon? And so, yeah, I think – all of that is that it just kind of ate its own tail. Yeah. And it's just so fascinating to me that we're seeing it happen at a much faster clip than I expected it to. And that all of these new spots that are opening, especially here in New York, are openly talking about the fact that the lists are classic. And that, I think, is very telling and I think has a lot to do with the fact that these wine professionals and owners have recognized that natural wine has not been the moneymaker that they thought it would be, that actually they were all doing just fine before, and going back to it is actually what could allow them to sell more wine, especially in the age of the rampant popularity of cocktails. Well, and I think you think about the other challenge for natural wine, most natural wine in a restaurant setting in particular besides the sort of temperamental nature of it, the fact that there's a lot of bottle variation, which can put you in situations as restaurants where you're having to like, you know, open a new bottle for people to keep them happy, et cetera, 
is that there is kind of an upper limit to how much money you can charge people for wine that's very young that's mm-hmm. like sort of that sort of yeah fresh vibrant like uh, unserious i guess style because in the end like restaurants make a lot of money selling people expensive wine and expensive wine is mostly even if it in some cases can sort of fit the description of what natural wine may or may not be mm-hmm. is not generally positioning itself that way and is like you know it's just a different kind of wine program right the 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 higher end you know bordeaux burgundy napa you know italian wines etc it's like they're not playing that same game now whether the game they're playing is long-term viable itself is another conversation for uh, a different episode but the point is is that as a restaurant if you're looking at margins you're looking at sales it's hard to be really successful selling 75 you know, 50 to $75 bottles of natural wine when you could, in theory, be selling $300 bottles of other stuff. And like, that's just a different, just a different reality that natural wine, because of its very nature, just has never been able to kind of get on the same footing with that part of wine. And restaurants all like to believe, wine bars all like to believe, retail shops like to believe that they're the ones who are going to move the high-end product. And if you can't offer high-end product, you're going to struggle for shelf space in some cases. Totally. Well, let us know what you guys think. Are you seeing this in your markets as well? Podcast at vinepair.com. Let us know what you think. Are you hearing less people order natural wine? Are you ordering less natural wine? Are you hearing just the term natural wine be used less? Are you hearing people move back to saying the wine is biodynamic or organic or sustainably made? Um, and are you? does it seem like the, the programs at the restaurants and, and wine bars you frequent are evolving and changing? Very curious because it's definitely happening here in New York City. Uh, no, as you said, Zach, it's happening in Seattle. So curious if it's happening in your market as well. And Zach, I'll talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.